Radio that's got to go fast. Welcome to Rave Dad's Diary, the show that explores the globalization of electronic dance music from the perspective of a rural Alberta boy turned raver. I'm your host and resident Rave Dad, Paul Brooks. Rave Dad's Diary broadcasts on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary at the University of Calgary campus and community radio station located on Treaty 7 land. I acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Siksika, the Pagani, and Kaina First Nations, the Sutina First Nation, and the Stony Nakoda. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Welcome to Rave Dad's Diary. It's the last show of the year, and I'm rebroadcasting my conversation with Tona Ohama. He put out one of the most interesting and original releases of 2021. Stay tuned to hear him talk about my electronic country album. Yo, everybody, this is Contra from the Science Box Collective and Carta Madras. You are listening to Rave Dad's Diary on 90.9 FM CJSW. It's probably not what you're thinking. That's what Ohama says about his new album, titled My Electronic Country Album. If you think the title means you're getting Ohama's take on 13 country classics arranged with synth sounds, you're only half right. On today's show, I talk to the enigmatic Calgary-based artist about his new project. It's amazing. It's unlike anything I've heard before. Stick around. To kick things off, here's one of the tracks that launched Ohama's music career from 1983. This is Julie is a TV set.
You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary on 90.9 FM CJSW. My name is Paul Brooks. We just heard Ohama with Julie is a TV set. If you're unfamiliar with Ohama's story, you're about to hear it in his own words. We are going to listen to an excerpt from Ohama's new album titled My Electronic Country Album, beginning with Prologue, Growing Up in the 60s. Hello, my name is Tona Waltz Ohama, and I'm an electronic recording artist. I grew up on a potato farm in Rainier, Alberta, Canada, and was operating a potato harvester, unsupervised, at age 12. I'm named after my father, Tono Ohama, and his friend Walter Kraft, who was chairman of the board for Safeway Canada. My dad was potato king of the world, and we had the biggest potato farm in Western Canada. We even had our own brand of potato chips, Golden Top, so we didn't just farm, we also owned a factory in Brooks, Alberta. I was born in Brooks in 1960, and my father was born in Calgary in 1912. That's the same year the Calgary Stampede began. He loved the Stampede and everything Western. He wore a cowboy hat and a Western belt buckle. One of my early memories of my father is him standing at a table, long table like at a wedding, and singing a country song. My dad could yodel, like Jimmy Rogers, and he just loved country music. Guys like Hank Williams, Merle Haggard, and Johnny Cash. Growing up in the 60s and 70s, I was so lucky. I got to do so many different things. Some were commonplace farm things, like saddle a horse. But others were pretty unusual, like fire a 38 caliber handgun. Long before I ever skied at places like Mount Norquay, I tried skiing down the roof of a potato cellar. As a kid, I had everything, every toy you could imagine, every vinyl record by Walt Disney. This will sound crazy, but we had quadraphonic vinyl records. My dad was always buying the latest gadgets. We had the first microwave in Rainier, the first color television. In fact, we had not one, but two color TVs and two fireplaces. I used to worry, how will Santa know which chimney has the stockings? I grew up in such a different time, and I loved it. My parents would take me on business trips to Calgary and leave me completely unsupervised in the Palliser Hotel. At age seven, I'd watch TV, order room service, king crab, big fruit bowls with cherries, Downstairs, I could comfortably order off the menu, and I knew how to use the proper silverware. But the thing I remember most about the Palliser Hotel is the women. They look like movie stars. I thought they were so glamorous. Beehive hair, furs, jewels. I love the memory of the Palliser Hotel in the 60s. Smells like Chanel Number no. 5. So, why have I done a country album using synthesizers? Well, when I ask people this question, what type of music do you listen to? The most common answer is, I listen to everything. Oh, except country. I'd like to get some of those folks to listen to some country music. I bought my first synthesizer in 1975, an RPAX, serial number 119. And sometimes it feels like electronic artists don't get that much respect. I've been told by more than one person that a synthesizer isn't even a real instrument. 
at the Calgary Folk Festival after party, another musician asked me what I played, and I said synthesizer. And she said, Ugh, I'm so sorry, and walked away. So I'd like to get those folks to listen to some electronic music. I set out to make a real country album, but I wanted to use all electronic sounds, not samples, not imitations of acoustic instruments. I didn't even use drum samples. I wanted to use synthesized sounds, especially monophonic sounds like from the 70s, or video game type sounds from the 80s. Burger Time, Legend of Zelda. On the other hand, I wanted to keep my vocals natural. That means I didn't use auto-tune and I didn't cut and paste my vocals from chorus to chorus, which is pretty common practice today. Because recorded music has gone mostly streamable, I decided to record my liner notes this time. So each song is accompanied by a little story, because country music is all about the vocals and the stories. Okay, so welcome to my Electronic Country album. I'm going to start off by telling you three things you probably don't know about me. First, I used to smoke cigarettes. Second, for ten years I was a professional dishwasher. And third, I've actually been homeless. I wasn't a heavy smoker, maybe a pack a week, but I smoked for over 30 years. My brand of choice was Players Light Smooth, and I used to love everything about smoking. Now, when I say professional dishwasher, that means flying to a remote campsite and doing dishes for a thousand people using big industrial machines and proper PPE. In the 60s, in my family, boys didn't do the dishes. So when I got to help my sisters with the washing up, it was kind of fun. I liked it. In fact, today, I still like doing dishes. All my friends know, if I come to your house, I'm going to do your dishes. Now, when I say I was actually homeless, what that means is... On April Fool's Day, I'll never forget April Fool's Day. On April Fool's Day, 1999, I lost my home. I was seriously homeless. I made the mistake of trying to make things work until I had really exhausted all my resources. And I learned things, like the MEP will take your driver's license and suspend your passport. My bankruptcy trustee said, you are what we call creditor proof. (laughs) I mean, I had no bank account, no credit cards, no car or driver's license, no telephone, no ID, no address. You can't even apply for welfare without an address. That hobo, hippie, bohemian lifestyle never seems to go out of fashion. It's romantic, especially when you're young. But I think very few people get to experience it for real. I did. For nearly six months. And every time I picked up a cigarette butt, I'd think of this song, King of the Road, originally recorded and written by Roger Miller in 1965. Trailer for sale or rent Rooms to let 50 cents No phone, no pool, no pets I ain't got no cigarettes, sir, but 
Two hours of pushing broom Buys an eight by twelve for bedroom I'm a man of means By no means King of the road Third boxcar midnight train Destination banger Old worn out suit and shoes I don't pay no union dues I smoke old still years I have found Sure not to beg around I'm a man of means by no means King of the road I know Ain't locked when no one's around I've seen trailers for sale or rent Rooms to let 50 cents Enough on, no cool, no pets I ain't got no cigarettes But two hours of pushing room Buys a eight or twelve for bedroom I'm a man of me King of the road Trailers for sale or rent Rooms to let 50 cents No phone, no pool, no pets I ain't got no cigarettes About two hours of pushing You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary, and we just heard the beginning of a new album by Ohama called My Electronic Country Album. Joining me to talk about this intriguing new album is Tona Walt Ohama. It's nice to meet you on the radio. Yeah, hi, Paul. I'm really happy to be doing this. How long have you had the idea for this country album? Um, it's been about eight or nine years, actually. Quite a while. Like 10 years ago, I was listening to a lot of chiptune music, 8-bit music. So I love things like 8-bit Led Zeppelin and 8-bit Dark Side of the Moon. But I was wondering if you could do that sort of music with vocals. And then I wanted to take it to the next level. So I, I decided to do a prog rock album, but just use uh, monophonic synthesizers. So the album I chose was called Thick as a Brick by Jethro Tull. And if you look at any list of the greatest prog rock albums of all time, Thick as a Brick is going to be really high on that list. It's become like one of the most iconic prog rock albums of all time. And it was the first album I ever bought with my own money. I was 12 years old, and it had just come out, and it's a really important album to me. So I, I recreated or covered... This album, it's what's unique about it, it's one song. So it's one song, 43 minutes long. That was unheard of in 1972. And uh, my version matches up pretty closely. Like if you play them side by side, tempo wise, they'll stay in sync for the whole 43 minutes. So I was really meticulous about trying to recreate it. And I was so happy with the results, I decided to enter it in the Juno Awards in the electronic category. And I wasn't trying to get nominated. I didn't think I'd get on the shortlist. But what I wanted 
was for the judges to hear my work because I thought maybe someone might appreciate it. And then my entry was disqualified. There's no cover songs in the electronic category allowed. At least back then. That may have changed now. I don't know. Uh, and some people went to my defense. They said things like, Soft Cells, Tainted Love. That's a cover song. But the ruling stood. I appealed it, and they uh, they just disqualified me. And that means no judges are going to hear the album. And then I got the thought, well, if I was doing a country song, country cover, there'd be no problem. That's where the idea came from. Was it always going to be, in part, a spoken word album? <laughs> uh, no, not at all. Like It was just going to be country songs. Uh, the spoken word part sort of evolved and came about later. And um, I, I released this album called Girls Monosynth Tower. G-R-R-L-Z. That's how my wife wanted me to spell girls. And that's 2017. And what that was, was I took existing recordings by female singer-songwriters that had no synthesizers on them, and then I added synthesizers. And each artist on the album got a page. There was like a photo and credits and liner notes, uh, little story maybe about how I knew the girl or why I chose the song. And what I found was nobody, uh, shouldn't say nobody, but like very few people read album, album notes anymore. They don't do it. So I think we lost something. Like if you don't have the context, I don't think my recordings are that interesting. You know, if I'm competing against every song in the world, there's not there's not a lot there. And uh, anyways, I what I wanted to do then, I thought, okay, I'm going to record the liner notes. Then people might listen to them, right? And because you can make these multiple Spotify playlists, really easy to make an album with the liner notes, like a director's cut, and then make an album with just the songs. So I thought this is a good idea, but it turned out the idea really sucked, actually. The liner notes don't sound very good. And so it sort of grew into stories, but um, that's how the idea started to become more of a spoken word album. The album contains stories about potato farming, drugs, near-death experiences, clubbing in New York, and water skiing aqueducts in southern Alberta behind a pickup truck. Are all the stories true? Yeah, of course they're true. Uh, <laughs> of course they're true. I think everybody can tell when a story is authentic. Like My life's been so crazy, there's no reason to make up anything. The stories are 100% true. The album is riveting. Oh, thanks. During some of the spoken word sections, I felt like I was listening to a compelling true crime podcast. <laughs> Our, a lot of the stories are dark. Hmm. Was it difficult telling some of these stories? Oh, yeah. It was really hard to to tell some of these stories. Yeah, 
some of them, okay, I got to tell you, like some of them were so. Uh, we'll probably talk about this later, but the early recordings were really bad, right? The stories did not sound good, but they were so painful to tell. I did not want to record them again. I didn't want to tell those stories. One of my favorite parts on my Electronic Country album, and I think one of the happiest stories, is where you talk about a very special person in your life, Mia. Mia's story and my story, it's like one of the great romance stories of all time, I think. Like, I'm in my 60s, and every day Mia's going to say, she loves me so much her heart feels like it's going to burst. We are just totally in love. It's amazing we got together. In 1983, I was performing at the Pump House Theatre in Calgary, and that's where I met Mia. Mia was the first person I ever met with hair dyed red and a pierced nose. She'd been living in Blackheath, in England, studying at the Le Bon Centre for Movement and Dance, and was one of the original Blitz kids. I stood in the wings and watched Mia perform. She was dancing to one of my favourite songs from the 80s, Forbidden Colours by David Sylvian and Ryuichi Sakamoto, and it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. 1983. For me, the early 80s will always be about that moment and the color black. All the walls in my recording studio were black. I dressed in black. I even wore black eyeliner and black nail polish. Mia was also going through her black period, and she had legally changed her name to Mia Blackwell because she said, she wore black well. Together, we certainly had a look. We'd go to clubs in New York City, and the doorman would always wave us right in, no matter how long the line was. Clubs like CBGB's, Area, Limelight, Danceteria. Area changed the entire club to a new theme once a month. Limelight was in this beautiful old church. Danceteria is in the movie Desperately Seeking Susan. Mia and I saw the movie Liquid Sky at the Waverly. And if you have any interest in the 80s, you should check out Liquid Sky. I think it's the most accurate 80s movie ever made. When I first started performing, I'd go around with a ghetto blaster to play my backing tracks. And it looked just like Adrian's rhythm box performance in Liquid Sky. That scene always makes me smile. It takes me right back to my early days performing at Ten Foot Henry's. Now the original Man in Black, of course, was Johnny Cash. In many ways, I feel my relationship with Mia was like Johnny's relationship with June Carter. I know this will sound like a cliche, but I know that love at first sight exists because it happened to me. And 30 years after that Pump House Theatre performance, Mia and I got married. It was surreal to stand at the altar of Nogs United Church and watch Mia walk down the aisle to the song Forbidden Colors. This song is Ring of Fire, originally recorded by Johnny Cash in 1963, written by June Carter and Merle Kilgore. Fire. 
flames went higher And it burns, burns, burns The ring of fire The ring of fire listening to Rave Dad's Diary on 90.9 FM CJSW. We just heard Paint It Liquid Sky and Ring of Fire from Ohama's new album, My Electronic Country Album. I'm speaking with Ohama now. Tell me about the recording process. Um, recording process. I Early on, I decided no samples, like no imitations of acoustic instruments. I wanted to use synthesizers. And this was a real tough one. I decided to not even use a drum machine. So no drum samples. That's pretty uh, accepted, right, to use drum samples? No drum samples. Now, for listeners who don't know the difference, a sampler is a recording of an actual instrument, usually. That's the source. Whereas a synthesizer, the sound source is a generated waveform. So they're very different technologies. And uh, it was tough to totally ban any instruments that sounded acoustic. That was tough. Like the sound of a steel guitar, when you hear that, it immediately says to you, oh, this is a country song, or a banjo, or a fiddle. And if you strip all those sounds out, like how in the world are you going to make a country album? How how are you going to do that? How are you going to make it a country album? So it was really, really difficult. Um, I'm going to tell you, in my recording process, at the beginning, I wanted to do these songs as faithful to the originals as possible. So I even I recorded them in the original keys, and I tried singing them in those keys. But they're out of my range, or they're the wrong key. It didn't work. 
And you can ask my wife. I did hundreds of takes, and she had to live through that. And then I threw them all away. And then I redid all the audio as in different keys, in my key. Um, this might, I don't know if this is too technical, but you do an electronic show, right? That's what this is. So people will know what I'm talking about. I don't record uh, MIDI tracks. I render it all out to audio. So when I record, it's exactly like recording to an analog tape deck. So when I had to change keys, I had to scrap all those audio tracks and redo them. That's the way I like to record. It feels like more permanent. And uh, I don't, I don't, I would never leave a track as a MIDI track. What synths did you use? I usually don't talk about synths, but I'm going to say I lean towards ARP synthesizers rather than Moog synthesizers. ARP stands for Alan R. Perlman. And Alan was the only real direct competition to Bob Moog in the 70s. And uh, I like that sort of sound. So I own an ARP, and I'm always inspired by the ARP synthesizers when I make my sounds. My sounds are really simple. So I could have made this album with any any cheap little synthesizer, like a Casio. I'm pretty sure. Would have sound different, but I could have done it with anything. And I already mentioned I didn't want to use samples. I think um, I'm. I like to keep things really simple. Like you, you might laugh, but I'm influenced by a band called Nickelback. <laughs> oh, so you did? <laughs> but okay, now hear me out. Nickelback has this sound. It's called the Nickelback sound. And they don't stray too too far from their sound palette. And that's really inspiring to me. I think with synthesizers, it's really tempting. You get a new piece of gear and you go, you can just use a new sound like that. But it's not a good reason to just plug in a new sound just because it's cool and it's there. I think you got to really think about what you're going to do with your sounds. And I'm trying to always limit the synthesizer sounds I use. Classic Country has a specific style and a sound. What was it like arranging this music for electronic instruments? Uh, sure, it was really, really tough, like hard. I say I use really simple sounds, but tons of work go into every little tiny detail of every single note. Like really simple, but a lot of work goes into each note. So... I want to try to construct a feeling. I'm moving things around by milliseconds. I'm trying to hit it a little differently to make it feel like country, even though it's got nothing to do with country. And uh, like more than once, I felt just like quitting. I was like, you know, there's a reason why no one's doing country music with synthesizers. This is never going to work. It's just not going to work. Country music is often so much about authenticity. How did you get into a country mindset for recording the album? Um, one thing I did was I put up photos. I put up photos of people like Reba or Natalie Maines, Johnny Cash, Garth Brooks. 
I had them looking at me when I was singing my vocals because I wanted to keep the vocals. That helped me keep my vocals in line because I was really um, inflexible about the vocals. They had to be natural. I didn't want to put production tricks on there. I didn't want to double track the vocals. I definitely didn't want to use auto-tune. I'm so... I'm so tired of auto-tune. It's everywhere, especially in modern country music. Every song has auto-tune, and I just want to hear their voice. And uh, so I I use their pictures to keep me on track. I'm, I'm going to just sing. If you hear me sing like right now, that's just what I sound like. And that was the goal. And I've grown up with country music. I'm not a cowboy, but I'm a farm kid. And uh, like I've done things like... Our our cattle brand was Bar T Lazy O. I've branded cattle. I've ridden horses. But I'm not a cowboy. But I've done that thing. Back where I live, there was one radio station, and it was a country station. What's your favorite country song of all time? Is it on this album? Mm-hmm. My favorite country song of all time is uh, I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry. Or Wichita Lineman. <laughs> And I like King of the Road. And The Gambler, that's a brilliant song. The way it's written, I could never write a song like that. So these are all, actually every song in the album is probably my favorite country song. That's why it's on the album. You share deeply personal stories about your life. And you're in your 60s now. Why share these stories now at this time? Well, I'm actually a very private person. Uh, But for this project... I, I don't think you can just sing a cover song. You kind of have to justify it. Especially if it's like a well-known classic country song. You can't just sing it. you got to earn the right to sing that song. That's what I believe. And so the stories came about to uh, explain why I had that right. They're They're almost like a defense. This is why I can sing this country song. <laughs> I think that's what it is. It started that way, and then it evolved from there, actually. Um, country music is authentic. That's what it is. And all the fans know all the stories about their favorite country artists, and they, they are, they're along for their tragedies and their heartaches and you know problems with taxes or drugs or alcohol. And that's when I figured out that that was the key, actually, to a country album. It's not the sound of the steel guitar. And it's it's not even like the twanginess in the voice. What makes a country album real is that the artists uh, bear their souls. So I knew that I was going to have to kind of put myself out there if I was going to try and do a country album. Now, I want to say a couple of things. Uh, this is not a country album, Paul. <laughs> I tried, but I would never call this a real country album. And I'm not a real country singer. I'm an electronic artist. And the second thing I wanted to say was, uh, just because I'm telling these stories um, now, I'm my life's not suddenly going to be like an open book. So I've been saying to people, you want to hear these stories? You You listen to my album, please. Thank you. But if you want more than what's on the album, I have no comment.
In the late 80s, I bought into that whole greed is good thing, made famous by Gordon Gekko in the movie Wall Street. It was all about material things for a while, and I'm not proud of it. But I once owned five houses and flew a Cessna 150. Instead of Gecko, I probably should have listened to Lou Mannheim, who says things like, The main thing about money, bud, it makes you do things you don't want to do. Or, and this one always stuck with me, man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character, and that is what keeps him out of the abyss. The lowest moment of my life was standing on McLeod Trail holding a garbage bag full of everything I owned after being kicked out of Alpha House for using. For the very first time in my life, I was completely free. No responsibilities. But I had nowhere to go. I had lost absolutely everything. And not just money. I guess that's what they call hitting bottom or looking into the abyss. I didn't even have enough money to get a room at the cheapest motel on McLeod Trail for one night. But I offered less than full price, something I'd never done before, and they accepted it. And then I went out and found someone who was in just as much trouble as me, and there's always someone. That night was over 20 years ago, and although I can't recall her name or her face, I can remember the exact quality of the light around the motel curtain and the way she let her hair down. I lay in the dark, and it's the first time in my life, the only time in my life I can remember, trying my hardest to not think about what was coming for me the next day. This is Help Me Make It Through the Night, originally written and recorded by Chris Christopherson in 1970. Take the ribbon from your hair Shake it loose and let it fall Laying soft upon my skin Like the shadows on the wall Come and lay down by my Through the 
listening to Rave Dad's Diary on 90.9 FM CJSW. My guest is Ohama, and we just heard Greed is Good and a cover of Help Me Make It Through the Night from Ohama's latest, My Electronic Country Album. You're an excellent storyteller. Is that something that comes naturally? Oh. <laughs> uh, thank you. No. I am not a storyteller. I had to become a storyteller to do this album. And it was like so much work. I Harder harder than I imagined to tell a story. Okay, um, so let's go to the beginning. First, I spent ages writing the stories. Like we're talking months and months, writing them, writing them. And when I was finally sort of satisfied with the stories... That's when I tried reading them out loud. And uh, I thought, oh, it's going to be easy. I'm going to read the stories. That part will take a few hours of recording. I, you know, cut them into the songs and totally did not work. When I listened to my early recordings, the first time I heard it, I was literally like sick to my stomach. Like they were terrible. It, it was horrifying how bad they were. I... Like things that sounded fine in my head when you read them, when I read them, they sounded completely different when I tried to say them. So, what I did was I called my sister Natsuko for help. Now, Nat's a classically trained actress, like highly respected in her field, theater, Shakespeare. Um, I'm going to tell you a few things about her. She, like, she lives in New York, she teaches in Los Angeles at USC. She teaches voice. Her mentor was Kristen Linkletter, and Kristen is a legend. Uh, she just passed away in 2020, actually. Um, Natsuko, her focus is the theater, but uh, I think your listeners, I think listeners would find it interesting that she's actually had small roles in a few big movies, like movies you've seen. I'm pretty sure you've seen, like Speed. Uh, Flatliners, Pirates of the Caribbean, um, Bad Santa. She was on a TV series called uh, Forever Night. And uh, Natsuko, she's like a master level voice teacher. And she works with professional actors. So I've never, ever thought uh, I would be asking her for help, but I did. And she really helped. And so... What happened next is, like, I had to learn everything. It was everything. I mean, how to write dialogue. Not stories that were meant to be written, like, in a book or read in a book, but, like, actual dialogue, like a script, spoken word. It's a totally different beast. And then I had to rewrite everything, and I had to edit it, and there were hundreds of rewrites. And I was practicing every day, and I, I had to actually memorize every word. I couldn't read it. I had to memorize it. And then learn how to deliver a performance and how to connect my breath and my body and my feelings and voice. I I had to learn how to 
sound like natural on purpose, like how to be myself on purpose. So I learned a lot, like way more than I expected to try and learn. Um, actors, I appreciate them way more. Uh, I'm going to go on a tangent, and if you don't play this, it's okay, but I'm going to just tell you a story about my sister. Uh, this is from years ago. She's doing a play down in Los Angeles with this band called Hiroshima. And Hiroshima is a pretty big band in East L.A. And what the production was, was the band would was set up in the back and then they had actors in the front playing the, act, uh, playing the members of the band. So the band would play a song and then the actors would come out and perform a story from the band's past. Kind of like this album, I guess. And then the band would play a song and the actors would perform another story. Well, the actors rehearsed for months, right? They rehearsed, rehearsed, rehearsed. The band probably didn't rehearse at all. <laughs> and when I went to see the show, the actors, they're there early for curtain call and they're, they're preparing and they're warming up and the band's not even there. Like, probably two minutes before you have to go on stage, the band sort of wanders in and gets on stage and plays. <laughs> so that's the difference between a musician and an actor. It's it's really like two different types of performance. And I never really clicked on me. It never clicked on me why these actors were rehearsing for so long and until I tried these stories. So that's way off on a tangent. But I thought I really started to understand the difference between these actors and a singer. Very different. If you made a podcast about your life, I'd listen to it. <laughs> Thank you very much, but that, that's not going to happen. <laughs> After this experience, I am never doing this again. That's my... <laughs> There's not going to be a second electronic country album with stories. I, I just, I can't do it. And, you know, people around me have been talking to me saying, oh, you're a great storyteller. They've got all sorts of ideas. No, I'm I'm working on my next album, and it is something completely different. And that's my focus, is making albums. You seem to be in a really creative time in your life. Can you tell me about the other projects you're working on? Um, I could. <laughs> but, uh, no, I don't think I'll do that. I'd rather talk about what what's happening and... Like, what might be? There's always projects in the fire, right? Lots of them. Thank you, Ohama, for chatting with me today about your new album, my electronic country album. We're going to finish on the last cover on the album, a track made famous by Garth Brooks called The Dance. It's a stunning cover, and I think it's my favorite on the album. Yeah, I want to tell you something about The Dance. Like, just before that song on the album really quietly there's a hidden credit and you know i i want people to sort of discover this accidentally but i'm going to tell you i say i made this album for tona and that means i made this album for my son tona and it means i made it for my father tona and it means it's for me it's for all of us <laughs>
Looking back On the memory of The dance we shared Neath the stars above For a moment All the world was right How could I have known That you'd ever say goodbye And now I'm glad I didn't know The way it all would end The way it all would go Our lives are better left to chance I could have missed the pain But I had to Episode 13 of Rave Dad's Diary is coming to a close. Rave Dad's Diary is written, produced, and hosted by me, Paul Brooks. Thank you to my guest, Ohama. 
Search Ohama and you'll find their music. The show is produced on Treaty 7 land at CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary, Alberta. Season 1 theme music is Orchestral Lab by Guido, released on Punch Drunk Records. The Rave Dad's Diary logo is by Homesick. Don't forget to check out the Rave Dad's Diary website where you'll find show notes and photos. pbrooks.ca slash Diary. Follow the show on Instagram at Diary. We'll see you next week. Can you feel it? Can you feel the love? Nothing feels better than CJS dubs. Hey, listeners, want some more love? Stay tuned to CJSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting from the University of Calgary.